are listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. What's up, Collective? My name is Jonathan, like our host said, and I actually have been to Collective a couple times, but it's been years. It's like a pandemic happened or something. You couldn't hang out, but I just got to say, your new space is dope. Like, it looks really, really awesome. My favorite part is the floor. I don't know what that says about me, but I love, like, the floor. It looks so awesome. No nasty carpet that gets ripped up every six weeks or anything like that. Anyway, that's me. I like it a lot. But you don't need to know much about me other than I'm married to a great woman named Steph, and I have three children under the age of five. They're four, two, and six months. You've got Evie. Oh, yeah, and this photo captures my life. This is just my life right now. It's absolute chaos. It's insanity. Okay, we got Evie. She's four. She looks like she's being held hostage, the one on the left. Uh, my middle child, Isla, I think has PTSD from us dropping her off at church so much. She thought we were going to like leave her, so she started wailing in the middle of Christmas pictures. And then my son, Indiana, I'm pretty sure he's just thinking about the next time he's going to get fed. He just looks locked in, dreaming about milk. So that's my family. And the great part of having young kids is they are an endless supply of illustrations for life. And uh, as you see, my two daughters, Evie and Isla, they're kind of in this phase where their favorite thing to do is to do something, wait till I'm looking, make sure they have 100% of my attention, and then they do the thing. And uh, this past summer especially, Evie, whenever she did something, had to have 100% of my attention. Here's just two examples that we have on video. She's very sassy. Very upset. I had my phone out taking a picture. And then here's another one. Not impressive, right? Not impressive. Yeah, so uh, they're in that phase where they, they have to make sure, especially Evie, she's got to make sure we're watching. And so, my wife and I, because we're good parents, over and over and over again, we watch them do the same thing again and again and again. And I notice that uh, when she says, Daddy, watch this, she doesn't actually do the thing until she sees me seeing her. So she won't build the tower or draw the picture or jump on the trampoline until she's got visual confirmation that her dad is watching her. And really, all she's saying is like, Dad, notice me. Dad, do you see me? Dad, pay attention to me. And I know this makes me sound like a bad dad, but when she interrupts me in the middle of something and she goes, dad, 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 and then I finally look at her and she just does this, and that's like her thing, I'm not impressed. Like it does nothing for me, but I still as a father have to say, wow, babe, good job, because I'm a good person, right? But it does nothing for me. And yet, I can't help but smile when she does this, and I know my daughter, deep down, doesn't need anything from me. She just wants me. She just wants my presence. She just wants some visual confirmation of what I say all the time about the insides, which is, I love you, I'm proud of you, you're brave, you're special, all that stuff. And, you know, all my daughter really wants in this moment 
is to be seen by her father, to know that he sees her, and to know that she matters to him. And one of the most profound things of being a parent, and if you have young kids especially, you know this is true, is when you have kids, you have a front row seat to the reality of the human condition. And you get to watch that human condition get played out through children. You get to watch these little people develop an imagination and a consciousness and a sense of fairness and justice. And you watch in horror as nobody has to teach them to be jerks and to be manipulative and to lie and to hide things. But in this sense, we get like a really fascinating microcosm of what it means to be a person. And in this sense... What we have to consider from my daughter, and if you have young kids, you've probably experienced this, you know this is true, we have to realize that there is an untaught behavior that children reveal about the deep internal want that's hardwired in every single person on the planet. This need and this want is the desire to be seen and the need to be known. Each and every one of us possesses a deep need to be seen and a desire to be known. And this manifests in different ways because I know some of you are introverts and you're like, well, I don't need to be seen. Yes, you do. You know, extroverts, we love to be seen in big public settings. We want everybody, lots of visibility, all that stuff. But even introverts want to be seen. It may be in more private and quiet and smaller settings, but there's a deep internal need to be seen and known. And if you look at our culture at large, if you just take a step back, you realize that our modern society, one of the primary motivators of our culture is this drive to be seen and known by other people. It drives the reactive patterns and a lot of the dysfunction we see in culture. I mean, some of the most destructive things in your life can sometimes come when you're trying to satisfy the need to be seen and the desire to be known, but going at it in an unhealthy way. I think a lot of us fall into two extremes. When we try to take this into our own hands and try to make ourselves seen and make ourselves known, but we, we navigate the fear that comes with it because we try to pursue a need created by God through other means. I think the two ways that you and I tend to go into these extremes when it comes to this need is one, we tend to perfect our external self or we tend to hide our internal self. We try to project, we try to satisfy this need by projecting our external self through performance and charisma We obsess about success and what we look like and what other people think about us, or we hide who we really are. And we tend to not maybe obsess about the optics or the aesthetics, but we never really let people in internally, and we keep people out. Because if no one really knows me, then they can't fully reject me. And the problem of these extremes is that you'll, yeah, you'll never be rejected, but you'll also never be really known, and if you're never really known, then you can never be fully loved. And so we try to satisfy this need to be seen and known, but we do it in unhealthy ways. And I've seen people throughout my life across the spectrum kind of jump to either of these two extremes, but at the end of the day, it's still a form of hiding. I could tell you about friendships who for a long time used an external self or internal hiding to cover up their addiction or to cover up the fact that they were abused or cover up the fact that when they were a child, they abused a family member and not even knowing how bad it was. Or to cover up the fact that they have anger that that calls all the shots when they're in the privacy of their own home, but when they get out in public, they put on a mask. See, no matter which extreme we fall to, neither of these methods are going to satisfy the deep need of the soul that God put within you, that my daughter displays. We have this need hardwired in us to be seen and to be known. And even on a lighter note, I mean, we even joke about this in society. We all know this is there. People will even say, like, if you didn't post it on Instagram, did it really happen? (laughs) 
you, you have this subtle but aggressive part of you that wants to make sure people know you do good things. You know, it's, it's that temptation to let other people know about the good thing you did in the community or the thing you did at church. I mean, I have a friend of a friend who's a pastor. Don't worry, it's not Michael, all right? It's not Michael. But I have a friend of a friend who's a pastor who has a large staff, and he went to take the trash out. But when he went to take the trash out, he saw his staff wasn't in the office yet. And so he went back to his office, waited an hour, then went back, grabbed the trash, and took it out in front of his entire team so they could know he's humble. That's gross, but we get it. We understand because there's this need to be recognized when we do good things. And so all of this, these reactive patterns of the world and culture and within our own heart, it all stems from our desire to be seen and our need to be known. And today, I'm not going to try to change that. I think it is deeply ingrained within us, but what I want to do instead is help you and I discover a better story. I think the human heart needs a story to help it navigate the chaos and brokenness of our world. And today, I want to help us each discover a story that is richer, that is better, that is harder, but it's more powerful because it aligns the ache of our soul with the character and nature of God. So as we continue this series, What's in a Name, and we explore the names of God in Scripture, I want to help those of us who know that we live with an unhealthy preoccupation of what other people think about us, and it motivates our behaviors, and we know they're problematic, but we don't know what to do about it. I want to help those of us who know we're guilty of hiding our real selves, and it's why that even in a crowded room like this or in a large, small group, even though you're around other people, you feel alone, unknown, and unloved. I want to help those of you that just love Jesus but you know you're not running after them as hard as you want to. And I want to help those of you who are coming in here metaphorically bleeding because of the wound that you carry with you. Those of you that just need some hope, who just need to know that could it possibly get better tomorrow? I want to speak to you today. Because the name of God that we're going to study speaks directly to the tension that I've just outlined. The name for this week's message comes from Genesis 16. And I want to give you the SparkNotes version. I don't know if SparkNotes is still a thing for kids, but I remember it helped me get through English class. Anybody else, SparkNotes? Great, thank you very much. All right. So I want to give you the SparkNotes version of this story in Genesis 16. It features Abram and Sarai. And God later changes their names to Abraham and Sarah, so that's what I'm going to call them today. But Abraham and Sarah are in their 80s, and God sort of promised Abraham that he would have this incredible legacy, but he's still got no kids. And so Sarah, his wife, is really distraught by this. She's wanted children her whole life. She's in her 80s, and she thinks God is preventing her from having kids. So instead of waiting on the Lord, Sarah takes matters into her own hands, takes her servant girl, Hagar, gives, it to, gives her to Abraham and says, hey, have sex with her so she can have a kid, and then we can raise it. Flawless plan, right? Great idea. So sure enough, that's what she does. She gives Hagar to Abraham. Hagar and Abraham have sex. Hagar gets pregnant. And then, shockingly, it doesn't go well. Who'd have thought that having another woman sleep with your husband to get a kid and then push her out after you have the child? Who'd have thought that would go poorly? It sounds like an episode of Maury or something like that. So long story short, Hagar gets pregnant. Uh, Hagar st starts throwing shade at Sarah because she's carrying around Abraham's child. Sarah starts treating Hagar super harshly. The whole thing is a mess. It gets so bad that despite being pregnant with Abraham's son, or Abraham's child, she doesn't know it's a son because I don't have modern technology yet, uh, but Hagar flees the, the community and goes out into the desert while pregnant. 
I mean, imagine, moms, imagine being in the first trimester in the desert by yourself. Rough. This is a desperate time for Hagar. So she flees into the desert, but there, it says an angel of the Lord leads her to water, that he guides her, that he comforts her. And in Genesis 16, 11, it says, the angel also said, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son, a great honor in ancient times. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. Then a few verses later, it says, Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well that the Lord led her to was named Bir Lachai Roi, which means well of the living one who sees me. Now, there is a lot that we could unpack from the story, like why it's a bad idea to take matters into your own hands when you're waiting on God, or why polyamorous thruple relationships are never going to be a good idea. No matter how experimental or progressive modern society gets, they are not going to work. But when we study the Old Testament, it's kind of easy to jump into a text and pluck a moral value that helps you feel better about your life, but when you study the Old Testament, your first question you ask, every time you read from the ancient Old Testament text, and it's all ancient, that was a bad word choice, but every time you read from the Old Testament, you have to begin with this question. What does this story reveal about the character and nature of God? And what this story shows is God is a God who sees, who comforts, and who knows His people. And this is such a formative story in our understanding of God because it's not like Hagar was on the top of some cultural food chain. She's at the bottom. She was a servant. Probably more accurately, she was a slave girl. And yet, despite having no worth in that culture, God draws near to her. He sees her. He leads her to water. And He brings His presence in isolation. He brings comfort in her pain. And here we see God receive a new name in the Old Testament, el Roi which is derived from the Hebrew word for shepherd, meaning this isn't like, oh yeah, I see you. That's not what God's saying. God is saying, I see you like an attentive, focused, tender, loving shepherd. That's what he's saying here. Now, thankfully, we don't have slaves in our society. We don't live in a caste system like some countries still do with rigid hierarchical limitations. But I know today some of you here might feel just like Hagar, maybe not in social status, but in spiritual significance. Some of you feel like you are at rock bottom when it comes to your faith or when it comes to your position with God. There's a good chance in, in a church this size that there's someone here who had an abortion as a teenager and you feel like if people found out, they would never accept you. And what's worse is that deep in your bones, you think God won't accept you. And so you feel like Hagar. I know there are people in this room who stay up late looking at things on the internet, videos and images that bring them shame and they don't know how to break the habit. And so you come to Collective and you mask up, not because of COVID, but because it's the only way you feel like people would accept you. You feel like Hagar. And if some of you in this room have been beaten, literally, you've been abused by family, you've been abandoned by someone who's supposed to protect you, and so the narrative over your life, deep down, you wouldn't say it out loud, but the narrative over you feel like is that you are someone who's dirty, unworthy, and unlovable. You feel like Hagar. But I want you to hear me. This name of God that we see in Scripture, El Roi, is the fact that God comforting a slave girl in the ancient world tells us everything we need to know about the goodness and grace and mercy of the Lord. 
that no matter what your status is or what you did or what has been done to you, God is a God who sees you, who wants to lean in, and he wants to know you deeply. And this isn't just me like plucking a story and making you feel good and saying, look, this happened one time, so it's true for everybody. This is true for the nature and character of God. Look at this. Jeremiah 1.5, he says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. He knows you. Psalm 121, the Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. He sees you as you live. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. The Lord looks at the heart. He knows you. And Romans 5.8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Translation, he knows what we've done, he knows what we've yet to do, and still he desires you so much he died for you. This is the guy who sees you and knows you. And so real quick, if you are someone where shame isn't an emotion you feel sometimes, it's a state of being, that is not what the Father wants you to carry. No matter what you did or what's been done, God drew near to a slave girl in ancient times. I mean, this is unbelievable that he would have picked her of all the people in society to, to have this moment with. It shows his love for all people. And what God wants you in the, for you in this moment is to put down the shame of sin and guilt and put on the gift of grace and mercy, to trust in his kindness and walk with him and realize that you can trust this claim because of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so maybe you've been navigating faith for a while and you're realizing in this moment that what happened to you doesn't define you or you're just someone who's realized, I need to run after Jesus and experience this God who's gonna see me at my worst and still love me. We want nothing more for you other than to check the baptism box on your connection card. Go talk to somebody at the Next Steps area after service so we can have a conversation about what does it mean to walk and live by faith with the God who sees you. But God is a God who sees you. This is a beautiful name, El Roy that we see in Scripture. Now, all this sounds really good, like really good, sounds good, but the natural tension whenever we gather together as a church is, okay, that sounds great, but like what do I do with this, right? Like it sounds good on a Sunday, but how does this impact my Thursday, my Friday, and my Saturday? If God sees me, and if this most fundamental instinct of needing to be seen and known is actually addressed in the character and nature of God, how should I live differently in light of this? And one of the most amazing things about Jesus is he models for us what it means to live in the light of these truths. He shows us what it meant to live in what he called the kingdom of God, living here on earth under the banner of truth of who God is and what he's about. And Jesus actually teaches in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to live in the reality that God is a God who sees you and knows you. In his teaching here, we discover a way forward, especially for those of us who are navigating that temptation to project an external self or hide the real you on the inside. And so here's what Jesus says about living in this reality of serving a God who sees you. In Matthew 6, here's what he says. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Excuse me. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Jesus, in this passage, and I just kind of took some of the big hits here, but Jesus here is calling his followers 
to conduct themselves in a way that is counter to the standard motivations of the world. And what's interesting, again, is that he's not trying to get people to like not care about being seen. He's pointing them to a better story. The reality that God sees us and knows us, and from that, he calls us to index our hearts to pursue the affirmation of God instead of the praise of man. He's not poo-pooing the idea of like doing good things. He calls us to be noble and, and to, to do impressive things for the kingdom and to be sacrificial. But he says, living in this reality of serving a God who sees us calls us to ask the question, what's my motive? Living with the God who sees you and trying to serve Him and doing things that the church has been called to do demands that we audit our own hearts by asking the question, what's my motive? Because living in relationship with a God who sees me means that I'm not primarily motivated by visibility of other people. And so Jesus calls us to go deeper, to contemplate when we do things for God, why are we doing them? When we do things for the Lord, as He's instructed us, when we do good things, are we doing good works for bad reasons? That's just one of the primary uh, functions of this passage in Matthew 6. And so as we navigate, what does it mean to serve a God who sees us? Okay, yeah, that's great, and there's comfort that comes from that, and we'll get for that in a minute, but what does it look like later in the week for us? What does it mean to evaluate our own motives? What does it mean to ask the question, am I doing good things for bad reasons? Let's pick on me, for example, all right? I'm up here preaching, and when I'm doing my job well, I'm broadcasting to anyone who will listen a message of Jesus' grace and truth. Here's my question. When I'm up here doing this, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Not if, not if I'm doing a good job. I don't want that feedback right now. But is this a good thing or a bad thing that I'm doing right now? Most of us, would, I assume, would say that what I'm doing as an institution is a good thing. But the truth is, you don't really know. All you have to go off of is my squishy exterior of my skin and the clothes and the, the things I'm wearing and the noises coming out of my mouth. But you would have to guess what's going on beneath the surface to know if this is a good thing or not. If I'm living in the light of this reality that God sees me or if I'm pursuing a motivation that's derivative of my obsession with you and what you think about me and all that stuff. I mean, I could be up here because I genuinely love Jesus and I just want people to find freedom in Christ and I want to stir up courage within you to turn from the short-sighted, soul-decaying practices of this world and run into a relationship with your Heavenly Father. That could be why I'm up here. It could be that preaching is my job and I've got kids, and I've got a mortgage, and I want it off this weekend, but Michael asked me, so I said yes, because I'm a people pleaser, and so here I am. Or it could be that I want more followers on Instagram, and I want more people to listen to my podcast, available where all podcasts are consumed. <laughs> it could be that I want more money so I can have more things and more power and more fame, and maybe one day finally satisfy the wounding of my eight-year-old self who was never worthy of love until I performed and people pleased my way into being accepted by my peers. Could be that. And here's the thing. Here's the dirty little secret. Over my 14 years of ministry and preaching and leadership, I have weaved in and out of every single one of those motivations at some point in time. And yet by the goodness and grace and kindness of God on my life, He is patient with me as at times I have done good works of the kingdom for bad reasons. I've lived at times so that I would be seen by man instead of receiving the praise and affirmation of my heavenly Father. I have not lived with the God who sees me. I've lived with a God that I'm not satisfied with, so I pursue the accolades of people. Now, to be clear, thankfully, 
I've done a lot of soul work on this, like a lot of counseling. And I can genuinely tell you, I have never cared less about what people think about me. And it, it feels so good. Now, I've never prayed more in the secret, quiet place of my life. But I know what I'm capable of. And I know I can't ever pretend that I've outgrown my need to continually recenter myself on the truth that above all things, I serve a God and know a God who sees and knows me and addresses that deep need that my daughter displays all the time. And for us, as we begin to be transformed by this reality that we have a God who sees us, it starts by calling out the ways you and I live out of step with the spiritual reality. I mean, we picked on me, but let's pick on you. Some of you post a photo of you and your spouse out on a date, and you both look good, and you write this long caption about how great they are and how much you love them and all that stuff, and it could be because you just want to honor them, you love them. It also could be because you want people to see how good you look in the pic, and you want people to see how much you're winning at life and that your marriage is better than that one that's falling apart. You know, you could go into a small group and say a prayer that just sounds so good and it's so spiritual, it, it really changes the atmosphere of the room and it sets the tone. But your real motivation is that you want to get a lot of spiritual yummies. You know what those are? When someone goes, mm, in the middle of your prayer, mm, amen, yes, mm. Listen, if there's ever somebody who's praying for a long time, don't give them the yummies because they'll keep going. They think it's like God giving them check marks for their prayer. So if someone's going lock, lock it up. They'll end quickly. Little, little secret of the industry there for you. But you could say a prayer and really be in the presence of God and want to draw people into that moment and be genuine and bleed in front of others and connect with the God who sees you. Or it could be that you just want to flex on them and show that you're really spiritually mature and you memorize a few verses this week. But we have a God who sees us. And what Jesus models is that we need to be brutally honest, not just with our actions, but with our motivations. See, Jesus models the way forward of what it means to live and serve a God who sees us. And so a primary message to us in this area of life, because God is El Roy, here's what Jesus says, trade the applause of others for the affirmation of the Father. This is what it means to serve a God who sees you. To live a life where you trade the applause of others for the affirmation of the Father. Especially if you are someone who is susceptible to curating and projecting an external self. This is what God wants to go to work out for you. In Western culture especially, there's this really big emphasis on altruism, which is the idea of like doing the right thing because it's the right thing. And sometimes in Christianity, we, we, we just say, hey, you know, we got to give to the poor because we're supposed to. Jesus is far more realistic about our motivations. He never says, pray because I said so, or give to the poor because, you know, it's the right thing to do. He says, no, your heavenly Father sees you. He says, you will get a reward from, your, from God, the Lord, from your heavenly Father for what you did. He doesn't try to take away the reward. He just says, don't pursue the one that comes from man because that's all you're ever going to get. Lean into me. Do things in secret so that we can cultivate a relationship in secrecy that brings about all the fruit of the Spirit, like peace and hope and joy and purpose. See, the truth is, the only way you're really going to exchange the applause of man for the affirmation of the Father is when your desire shifts. When you think in your life, times when you want to get healthy or exercise, the only time you actually turn off Netflix and stop eating ice cream every night 
is when you actually desire to be fit more than you desire to be entertained. The only way you experience sexual purity in relationships for real is when you genuinely desire faithfulness and freedom more than the satisfaction of your sexual impulses. You have to want something more than the initial want, and that's what Jesus talks about. He tries to bring us to a place where we could put down the applause of others and pick up the affirmation of the Father, knowing that we are not motivated by not having a reward. He gives us a new one. He doesn't ask you to do the right thing, just the right thing. He says there's a richness and a relationship and a tenderness that comes from being with the God who sees you in desperation and in isolation and in loneliness that can only occur when you put down the optics and the visibility and you pick up privacy with God. Now, I've got an application that's really deep. I want you to stay with me, all right? Here it is. Go be Jesus-y in a way no one will see. That's it. That was a joke. It didn't work, but you get it. Go be Jesus-y in a way no one will see. I think a major way to live in the reality that God sees you is to lean into doing good things for others and for God in secret. It's a great way to almost shift and break the paradigm of our temptation to serve and perform for others instead of just serving God in secret. So here's a couple of things you could do. In the morning, put your phone on airplane mode. Make yourself uninterruptible. Put a chair in your closet and physically isolate yourself during a time of quiet prayer and live at that extreme just for a few moments so it elevates the norm throughout your day. Listen, surprise someone with a meal but intentionally drop it off and let them enjoy it with their family because you need to squash that desire you have to be affirmed every time you do something good. Or even better, do it anonymously. Ding-dong ditch someone this week with a free meal because you know that you're doing this for the Lord out of what He's done for you, out of the gratitude you have for the gift of grace. You're going to give a gift of a meal for somebody else, and they're going to have no clue who it is, and you'll never tell them. Listen, some of you are parents Moms especially, if you've got young kids, every day is an invisible sacrifice. Every single day is an invisible sacrifice. No one will see that. And I know mom guilt is big and like there's this whole Instagram culture of like moms having it all together and everything's great. But I just want to encourage you, you are in a domestic monastery. You are being spiritually formed through the practice of having young kids. That is work. I just want to encourage you to receive and rejoice in what God is doing in your life through those little gremlins exposing your selfishness and your anger and your impatience, but just go to God in that space, knowing that no one else will see it and say, Jesus helped, because it's the only way I'm getting out alive. But this will be jarring for us doing things in secret because it's a spiritual muscle in our modern age many of us have never flexed. But when we do this, we get to, when we do things in secret, we get to see Jesus excavate the exterior of our obsession with performance, and we learn what it means to actually get less and less satisfied with the applause of others and be more and more satisfied with the affirmation of the Father. And the power of this comes because we'll realize over time we never had to perform for God in the first place. If you're someone who needs courage, though, to stop hiding, maybe you're not so guilty of projecting a perfect self, but you really tend to hide what's going on the inside. I want to encourage you to take a step today to open yourself up to God, because if you do that, it will inevitably lead to opening up to others. But I want to just reflect back on my daughter again, because God used her to teach me something profound. 
I, I know I sound like a terrible dad when I say uh, I don't really care when she does her little like ballerina jump thing, but it, it does nothing for me, like I told you. Uh, I'm not impressed. It's not like that's hard to do. It doesn't make my life easier. It doesn't help me. It doesn't do anything for me. But I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't love it. Like my, when my daughter looks me dead in the eye and says, Dad, did you see me? Did you see me? I'm not impressed. I don't think she deserves a ton of credit for that, but I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite things in the world when she's discovering her own self and exploring the world and including me in it as her father. And the truth is, when we perform for God or we try to posture for Him or we do things for other people and say, God, look at that, I think we look to Him the same way my daughter looks to me when she does her little dance. It doesn't change Him doesn't impact them, doesn't add value to the kingdom. All it does is just include him in. And so even as ridiculous as it sounds to compare ourselves now, trying to do good things for God as like a little girl just doing some ballerina dance for me, we have to realize there is nothing you and I do that contributes to God's being or change him or add to him. And yet, as a loving shepherd and father, he delights in you. And so if you are someone who wants to hide a lot, I want to encourage you that as much as a, a father can look at his little girl and take pride in something that adds nothing to him, infinitely more than that is how God looks at you. At your worst, after the affair, after you pick up a needle again, after you click the link again, after you harm yourself again, at your worst, God sees you and has more affection for you than I even have for my daughter as she does her dumb dance in the living room of my house. That is how God looks at you because he sees you and he loves you and he created you for the purpose of relationship. And this reveals that the real reward of doing all this is not really what you get in physical sense or even like treasures in heaven or whatever. Um, the real reward of living in light of a God who sees you is that your relationship becomes something that's so precious and private to you that's almost difficult to comprehend. If you try to ask a parent to talk about what it's like holding their newborn and what they feel, they, there's no words for that. But what you could have with God is what a parent has with their newborn. My son right now gets milk drunk. You know, like he drinks so much milk and he's just like, lifeless. And then when he burps and he finally goes quiet, he just stares. And it's like the most peaceful thing in the world. And I think one of the benefits of having a kid is you just get this much of a sense of what God thinks about you when you come to him in Christ. And that is the reward. This presence with your full self, leaning into him. And so practically, if you're someone who tends to hide, um, I want to challenge you to say a prayer this week every day. That might scare you, but it's to say, God, here I am. And you can even list all the stuff that you hate about yourself or you think God hates about you. But I want to encourage you to pray that every day and read over as a prayer Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24. It would take courage, but you can say to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is how we break free.
It's how we get off the hamster wheel or endless treadmill of performing and posturing and working and tweeting and bragging and accumulating, thinking that it'll somehow restore the broken parts of ourselves. We come to God as we are in stillness and realize we never had to perform for him in the first place because Jesus did it all for us. The way of Jesus, life in the kingdom, walking with the God who sees you, makes it so we can be fully vulnerable with God. We can be moved to do things in secret and share the secrets of our own hearts with others because at the end of the day, our obsession is not being seen by people or approved by people, but because deep down we know we already are in Christ. The question I would encourage you to ask this week as you spend time reading or journaling or whatever you do to engage with God is to ask the question Hagar asked in Genesis 16. Have I truly seen the one who sees me? Have I learned what it is to look at God, look back at you, and be at peace? And from that place, learn how to serve and give and receive and encourage and contribute from a tender, loving place, having received that love from a tender, loving shepherd, your heavenly father, knowing that even in your highest moments he lo- or, or your lowest days, God loves you all the same. And I think when we learn how to live in that quiet, hidden place with God, we come to learn more and more that God does see you, that he does love you, and he does it in ways that nobody else ever can. Here's how Tim Keller writes it. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, A lot like being loved by God. Serving a God who sees us means we first learn how to trade the applause of others for the affirmation of the Father. We can work on that by going and being Jesus-y in secret somehow this week. And we can do the deep work of allowing ourselves to experience what it means for him to see you and love you as you are by saying, God, here I am, and praying through that psalm prayer. This way of life is harder, but it is richer and it is better and it leads to the abundant life Jesus promises us. And he modeled it because he served every day El Roi, the God who sees you. Let's pray. God, I, I prayed this first service and I just feel it again, just the irony of me standing here on a stage with a bunch of lights talking about doing things in secret. But God, in our our modern world, obsessed with reach and visibility and likes and influence, Jesus, I am just so drawn to your way that is counter to the formation methods of our world. And that you call us to experience your sight of us in secret. So God, would you help us audit and navigate all of the factors in our world, the things that I can't even know, and give us courage as a community to learn how to live in light of your character and your nature, that you see us, you comfort us, and you draw near to us in the midst of our good and our bad. We love you, Jesus. We ask you to do this in your name. Amen.